Welcome to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative, a Boyer-inspired national consortium of research universities dedicated to strengthening and, if you will, reinventing undergraduate education. We're your hosts, Steve Dandino, Executive Director and Associate Provost at Colorado State University, the home of the Reinvention Collaborative. And I'm Liz Mock, Reinvention Collaborative Assistant Director. We're joined today by Dr. Ann Cleary, Professor of Cognitive Psychology at Colorado State University, whose research has focused primarily on human memory. Dr. Cleary was also previously a program director for the National Science Foundation and most recently co-authored a book on the science of learning. So Dr. Cleary, why don't you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and the book that you published very recently with Oxford University Press and co-authored with Colorado State colleagues, Dr. Matt Rhodes and Dr. Ed Deloche, a guide to effective studying and learning, practical strategies for the science of learning. Sure, so so my colleagues and I are all memory researchers who study aspects of learning and memory. And we all seem to share the common experience of what I call the surprised student. The, The surprised student is basically a student who comes into your office as an instructor or professor of a course after not doing so well on an exam, just absolutely shocked at having done poorly. Um, Usually, uh, the student had felt prepared for the test and was blindsided by the lower grade than expected. And usually when asked what they did to prepare, these students expressed similar strategies. Uh, they they typically uh, express having read and reread their notes or having read and reread the text and having felt like it was really clicking for them and that they were genuinely prepared for the test. And, and so they were blindsided when they discovered that, that actually they hadn't done that well. So the three of us, uh, Ed Delosh, Matthew Rhodes, and I, got to talking about this experience of, of the surprised student and how common it was for us as instructors. And since we all happen to be cognitive psychologists who, who study aspects of human learning and memory, uh, we, we were aware of the scientific literature on the pervasive disconnect that exists between people's judgments of their learning and their actual learning outcomes. And so we began to wonder if it might be helpful to explicitly teach students about effective study strategies, to try to equip them with better approaches to studying and better study skills. Uh, And so we began offering a seminar on applying memory and learning research to basic study strategies uh, for a few semesters. And somehow, I'm still not sure to this day how, uh, but somehow uh, it it got the attention of some of the people in in upper administration here at CSU. They were working on student success initiatives. And I think this idea of a course that helps to teach students study skills that are grounded in science uh, was really intriguing and appealing to them. And so with their help, we were actually able to more fully develop the course into an all-university course uh, that it is now. And so along the way, we also realized that there was no suitable textbook for such a course because no course like it 
quite exists anywhere else. And so we wrote our own book, which is sort of the history behind uh, why we wrote this particular book. And a guide to effective studying and learning is divided into 12 chapters, and it's our aim to ask you directly and maybe indirectly about each of those chapters. So first question, why is it that so much of what most people believe to be common sense about learning is challenged or at least complicated by the science of learning? I think a big piece of this is that learning itself is not intuitive, but it feels like it is or it feels like it should be. And so we don't have intuitive access to what helps our learning or to how we best learn. And this can make it very easy for us to believe claims about learning that are not actually valid, especially if the claims about learning seem intuitive or if they seem intuitively like they should work. A really good example is the notion of learning style. So as you probably know, learning styles is the idea that people have different preferred modes of learning information. Some people prefer uh, to have information visually presented to them. Some people prefer to hear information, for example. And learning styles is the idea that people learn best when presented with information in their preferred mode of having it presented to them. There is actually no scientific evidence to back this claim up. And, and it's not just a lack of evidence due to due lack of anyone trying to find evidence. There have been a number of studies uh, where researchers have actually directly sought evidence in favor of learning styles and have failed to find any. And so it's, it's not that people don't have preferences. Most people actually do have a preference. If I were to ask you how you prefer to information, you probably do have an expressed preference. The vast majority of students um, in our science of learning course also have a preference. And the vast majority of them enter the course believing uh, that learning styles or that adherence to their preferred mode of presentation is really a very important factor in how well they're going to learn. And so this is a really good example of a myth that most students come to college uh, believing about learning. And so I think in this case, in the example of learning styles, it's really easy to believe it because it seems to make intuitive sense. It's easy for people to think, yeah, I I do have a preferred uh, uh, method of delivery for, for how I prefer to have information presented to me. Uh, For example, maybe I prefer to have information presented to me visually. And so it seems very intuitively believable that perhaps adherence to that preference should make a difference. Uh, Again, it turns out that the science doesn't support that. And maybe one more example um, would be brain games. And so um, brain games uh, can easily mislead people into believing that they're improving their cognitive ability. Uh, You can track your performance on some brain games and see that you're getting better at the game. And and it can really feel intuitively like it's making a difference to your cognitive processing when in reality, it's really just making you better at the game. It's not actually making you a better learner in a general sense. Well, you know, we're purposefully skipping a question on Chapter 3, which is entitled Research Methods in the Science of Learning, because it gives Liz and I grad school nightmares. <laughs> we're going we're to skip that. But I, we would like to ask you uh, a question uh, that does deal with science. 
um, because your book is so focused on the importance of applying science and as your last answer just um, uh, documented for us. Um, do you worry that a thoroughgoing application of the science of learning to higher education might, if you will, unintentionally drain the ineffable magic, the human spirit, the indeterminate, in the moment, meaning from the transformative learning that is supposed to be characteristic of higher education, especially in the liberal arts tradition. You know, your book relies, uh, understandably, of course, on the methods of science drawn from the natural sciences. Should we be cautious? So, so I'll answer bluntly first. No, I, I'm not concerned um, about that at all. And, and I guess I'll follow up with some explanation. Honestly, I'm not a fan of the question itself, and I'll explain why. I think the question itself creates a bit of implication uh, that, I, that I think may promote uh, somewhat of a false dichotomy. And I, I realize that in our society, there's a tendency to want to draw a strong dividing line between the natural sciences and the liberal arts. But I think that that drawing such a strong dividing line or viewing the two as, as potentially being in opposition to one another is a misguided approach. And, and for two reasons, really. So, so first, science in general, and, and our, our approach to the science of learning in particular, does not at all preclude creativity, uh, discovery, or or the experience, the, the real human experience accompanying transformative learning and such. Rather, I would argue that, that these things all go hand in hand. And one reason is because achieving a fuller understanding of these very experiences that you mentioned through science can serve to, to foster or even enhance them. Uh, in fact, we discuss in our book some of the ways in which the science of learning can inform the study of creativity uh, and how, how one might set up circumstances that can enhance or potentially foster creativity, uh, insight or insightful experiences, or even experiences like the feeling of having an epiphany, uh, which does relate to maybe the sense of enlightenment that we might associate with transformational learning. So I can give an example. There's some researchers uh, who have been studying what we call the aha moment, which is sort of that eureka moment that you, you really have an epiphany or a realization about something. You come to some profound understanding for the first time. There's a great book uh, on this on the science uh, of studying this uh, by Kunios and Beeman, and it's called The Eureka Factor, Aha Moments, Creative Insight, and the Brain. And, and in the book, they review a lot of the research uh, on this in, in very accessible terms. I, I highly recommend the book. Uh, but I think in general, I think this book is illustrative of the fact that through science, we're coming to a better understanding of even these aspects of learning and discovery that I think that I think you're mentioning here. And I, I think with greater understanding comes an ability to potentially enhance these experiences or maybe even increase the probability of their occurrence uh, in education. So I really think that institutions of higher education should be aspiring to foster 
creativity and innovative thinking in, in, in different realms. And in fact, it seems like a highly desirable thing on college, on, on college campuses today around the nation. If, if you look around, there are a lot of now centers for innovation uh, on a lot of college campuses. And, and so I think fostering innovation is a highly desirable uh, uh, thing to achieve, including in higher education. And, and I do think that science can inform this pursuit. I think that the better we understand the processes and the circumstances that give rise to innovative thinking, um, the more we can set up circumstances that explicitly foster this and the more innovative we can potentially become as a society. Um, so, so I think it's, I, ultimately the bottom line is I think a better understanding will improve the human experience or the type of human experience that you seem to be getting at. But I think there's a second piece here as well. So it's not just that I think that that science can help us in our pursuit of, of increasing these types of transformational experiences. I think a second piece to, to why I don't like to view liberal arts and, and the sciences as being in opposition to one another and why I think they really go hand in hand with one another is because there's a growing body of research now suggesting that training in the arts, for example, actually benefits scientific thinking. So there's a growing body of work to suggest that training training people in, let's say, the visual arts uh, actually makes them better scientific thinkers. And one of the, the theories behind this is that perhaps um, better scientific thinking emerges from increased skill in visualization. And so I think this is another reason why why the two really go hand in hand, liberal arts and the sciences, and, and they're not at all in opposition to one another. Um, There's actually a very interesting uh, article that came out this past month in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences along these lines, arguing that training in the visual arts uh, and in design thinking uh, is beneficial to to scientific thinking. So so I'll just end maybe with with the notion that in any realm, we can ask the question, what is the evidence? In any walk of life, we can ask that question, but, but including in education. And really, science is simply our term for, for the collection of methods that we use to, to try to gather that evidence. And I don't, I don't view it as being in opposition to the liberal arts or to these types of uh, uh, experiences that, that you describe, such as the, the human aspect of transformational learning. Can you explain what metacognition is and why it's so important? Metacognition refers to our awareness and understanding of our own cognitive processes. And it turns out it, it's not intuitive. Uh, so, so we're often not very aware of our underlying cognitive processes, or we're, we often have a mistaken impression of them. It's, metacognition is important uh, to the science of learning because we all rely on it. We rely on our, our own awareness or our own understanding of our cognitive processes to make assessments about how we're going to study or how we go about learning information or, or what we should focus on when we're studying. So in this way, metacognition is relevant. It's relevant to the decisions that we make about our own study. Um, as an example, 
how people go about making decisions about what they should study further or what they should devote the most time on while uh, in the process of studying uh, is often made based on how people feel while they're looking at the material. So this is this is when I when I mentioned the surprised student earlier, very often when I ask the surprised student what that student was doing to prepare for the test or what the student was using to gauge uh, their preparedness for the test. They are often saying that while they were looking at the material, as they were looking at their notes, it really felt like it was clicking and it felt like they had this. Uh, and and the problem is making a judgment while looking at your notes is really not a good metacognitive gauge of how prepared you are for a test. It's much better to delay and test. And so one metacognitive strategy that we recommend uh, in our book and in our Science of Learning course here at CSU is what we call the delay and test method. Uh, and so it's a metacognitive strategy whereby students uh, will set the material aside for a delay, maybe a half an hour or so, long enough so that it isn't fresh. You haven't just looked at it. It's not fresh in your mind. And now you want to try to see if you can... Um, explain it in your own words, for example, without having it right there in front of you. This is a much better metacognitive assessment of how prepared you are for the test. It's also a very useful metacognitive assessment for um, figuring out where the gaps are in your knowledge and where you should go back and, and do a targeted review. So, for example, a favorite, a favorite exercise that, that I ask students to do is after setting material aside and delaying, then as your, uh, your testing strategy, try to write a letter to grandma. And so the letter to grandma is basically a letter that tries to explain in very simple terms to someone who has no experience with this subject matter or with this topic, how it all works or what this concept entails. And in so doing, it helps a student to really identify where are the gaps, where are the holes in the knowledge, what, what are they having trouble explaining, and then write those things down, and then use those gaps to target a review to go back and review that specific information. So this is an example of metacognition, kind of why it isn't intuitive, and, and how we can use very specific metacognitive strategies to improve our assessment of our learning as we go. So to go off of that, obviously, rote learning doesn't get much love in your book. Um, I enjoyed the demonstration of memorizing word pairs early in the book. So I could only remember one pair after repeating them to myself, even though while I was doing it, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally know these. Um, mm -hmm. But yet we somehow still collectively believe that memorization through repetition is effective. Why do you think this myth is so persistent and why is elaboration in contrast deemed superior? So this is a very common experience. Uh, most people report this when engaging in repetition. They really think they're going to remember more than, than they do. Um, the reason why, why we all tend to fall prey to this, this idea that rote repetition is going to benefit our learning is very likely due to the fact that as you're in the midst of repeating something over and over in close succession, you're momentarily making that information more accessible to yourself. It's, it's momentarily more accessible to your immediate awareness. And this 
temporary increase in accessibility makes it feel as if it's going to be more permanently accessible. So we misattribute that momentary accessibility for longer term accessibility. Um, and, and this is really a good example of, of the, the type of disconnect that leads learning to, to not be intuitive. And some, one of the reasons why um, our own metacognitive awareness is often uh, not accurate. When we base judgments on, on how we feel in the moment that we're trying to remember something, it's often not a good gauge. This is, this is actually a really great example of that. Um, in fact, I'll tell you, I'm a memory researcher and I should know better. And I still find myself falling prey to this at times. I'll, I'll at times think, well, I don't need to write that down. I'll remember that. Only to find out that later I completely forgot about it as soon as I got distracted. And I think to myself, I should know better. I'm a memory researcher and I teach about this. And even I'm falling prey to these same uh, metacognitive errors. It, it's something very easy for, for all of us to fall prey to. It takes a lot of training um, to get into habits to circumvent these uh, these natural metacognitive errors. Um, to to address your second part of your question, um, why is it that elaboration, in contrast, is deemed superior? I mean, there are two parts to how I'll answer that. One is that there's there's an abundance of data over decades of of research on on human learning and memory suggesting that. That elaboration, so making connections, thinking about relationships uh, uh, to the material, thinking deeply about the material, even even just simply asking the question "why" can 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 be a form of elaboration that's very useful. Um, and so, so there's an abundance of data from decades of research suggesting that elaboration leads to better retention than rote repetition. So there's that piece to why it's deemed superior. But there's another piece to why, and it, it's maybe, well, well, what's going on in our minds that, that, that leads this particular technique to be superior? Um, I think it boils down to, with elaboration, one of the things that's happening when you make connections between a new piece of information and information that's already in your mind or, or information that, that is already stored in your memory, you're creating all kinds of, of connections in your memory between these existing memories and this new information that you're trying to remember. And when you create these connections in your memory, what you're essentially doing is creating multiple different routes to potentially accessing that information later on. And so it helps to really embed that, that new information within the existing structure of your knowledge base in a way that makes it more accessible later on, if that makes sense. And I, like you, I was at a conference recently, academic conference, where the, in this case, the whole point of the three-day meeting was summarized to me in a single image. And it's an image which a lot of people have seen where three people are depicted of different, differing heights trying to peer over a, a wall. And in one frame labeled equality, each of the three had a box of equal size to stand upon, but that left the least tall of the three unable to see over the wall. And in the second, labeled equity, that depicted boxes of unequal size, but it, such that all the three persons could see over the wall. And the last showed a see-through chain link fence rather than a brick wall at all. And of course, everyone could see through that. 
I think I may have learned as much from that image as, you know, all the hours of talk and discussion over the three-day conference. How do you react to that experience? Mm-hmm. So, so I am familiar with the image that you that you mentioned. Uh, in fact, I have I just saw the image in a talk that I attended about a week ago. Um, it strikes me as a very useful analogy, and we do know that analogy is a powerful tool for increasing understanding. So, I really love your example here. Uh, in the book, we talk about the role of an, uh, the role that analogy can play in enhancing understanding of novel concepts uh, or making what I call giant mental leaps beyond one's current understanding. And so if you think about it, no new idea ever comes from nowhere. It always has to be attached to something in our mind that we already know and understand. An analogy can be a very powerful bridge uh, connecting uh, some new piece of information or some new concept that a person doesn't yet know or understand to something that they do understand. And so I think the, the image you describe is a very powerful analogy. It's taking a, a, a picture of something that's easy for people to understand, but linking it to this more powerful idea that they may not yet grasp. There is an abundance of research, actually, to suggest that having an analogy to draw from can, can dramatically increase a person's understanding of otherwise novel, uh, an otherwise novel concept or a novel idea. So again, I really think that uh, that your description is very illustrative of, of this fact and, and of the, the, the power of analogy. I think there's a second part to, to my reaction, which is what, what the analogy is meant to represent itself uh, in that image. And I think that the concept that the analogy itself represents kind of reminds me of something, actually, that I call a rich-get-richer effect in, in some cases of learning strategies. So, for example, you may have noticed this, this particular method in our book called elaborative interrogation. Elaborative interrogation is the simple method of asking why periodically while you're reading through material in a textbook or while reading through your notes or even while taking notes during a lecture. The simple act of asking why periodically is a form of elaborative processing that seems so simple that it seems almost too good to be true that it would be effective. But research study after research study suggests suggests that Periodically asking why can dramatically improve learning and retention of information. So you may have noticed in our book, we have these little elaborative interrogation arrows pointing throughout chapters to encourage people to remember to ask why periodically as they're reading through our book. Well, where I'm going with this is that um, when it comes to the technique uh, of elaborative interrogation, there is some research to suggest that, that while that technique is effective for everyone, it's generally a great strategy. Everyone should, should always be asking themselves why uh, as, as one of their study strategies as they're going through new material. While everyone benefits from this strategy, research suggests that people who are already high in knowledge of the subject matter show an even bigger benefit to asking why than people who are coming at it with low knowledge of the subject matter. 
So it's the case that everyone benefits and it's a useful tool, but there is this effect, and I call it the rich get richer effect, that people who are already high in knowledge show an even greater benefit to this form of elaboration. Um, and so, so I think this is maybe a good example um, in that the strategies that we offer are going to give a boost. They should give a boost to everyone, but it may not be an equal boost to everyone. And, and maybe the analogy of the wall itself in the image doesn't work quite as well in this type of case because any benefit is still good, right? If we can boost learning to any degree, that's a good thing for, for anybody. And so it's a technique that should definitely be used. Um, but, but that said, I think there may be something to the analogy in that image that you describe with regard to higher education um, and with regard to our goals for trying to help students succeed insofar as we know that students are coming to us with different levels of backgrounds or different backgrounds and different uh, preparedness uh, for college, depending on what their educational background prior to college actually was. And so students who happen to be coming from a good school system are probably coming with a different level of background knowledge for some of those first year classes than students coming from school systems that were maybe not as good. And so, you know, we might look at that as being like the wall versus the fence that you mentioned. I think ideally, we'd want all of our students in higher education to be able to come to us uh, equally well prepared for college. And we know that that's not the case. That some students are coming in at an advantage and some students are coming in at a disadvantage. But still, I think it's important to keep in mind that the methods that we're promoting in this book and in our in our course really do work and they really will provide a boost. It should provide, it's adherence to these types of strategies should provide a boost to everyone. Any boost is going to be a good thing. It's not that these techniques will completely solve the larger problem of leveling the playing field that I think of when I when I when I look at the when I think about this image. Um, and, and what it represents. I think there are larger societal issues uh, at work here that, that won't be fixed with simply teaching people study skills. But I think that, um, that, that, that our view is that th these strategies are empowering to people. So they might not help or boost everybody equally, but everybody should get a boost. And this should be empowering and generally a good thing. You know, listening to your answer reminds me of another recent experience where I was pitching a proposal to a college dean, and he his reply was, why, why, why? And it was exasperating and a little uncomfortable, but it did lead to a great clarification of what we were, uh, you know, there to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, so let's talk about cognitive load and cognitive offloading. So I know I feel overloaded much of the time with just with everything I have going on between work and life. And um, I think back to when I was a student and I definitely had some times when I felt overloaded. So, and I really appreciated the acknowledgement in the book that many of our students are balancing classes and homework along with caring for families, working, managing their finances, and many other obligations. So you gave lots of tips for cognitive offloading through organization to help students focus more on their classes, but how can we as university faculty, staff, and administrators better support our students' cognitive loads? This is a really great question. 
Um, and, and this question actually reminds me of a really interesting article that I read recently in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And the article was about this issue as it pertains to faculty, not students, but I think it's illustrative of, of this, this growing recognizable problem that we're all facing, students uh, and faculty alike. And so the, the article was called, Is Email Making Professors Stupid? And they argue that email, among other things, a lot of our digital lives, social media, email uh, being among them, uh, are consuming faculty time and attention. Uh, You know, we're spending lots of time managing our email inboxes, for example, instead of spending lots of focused time and attention on intellectual tasks like working on a manuscript and, and doing long stretches of writing. And so in the in the article, they, they argue that um, institutions of higher education should aim to, and I'll just quote them here, uh, reform the academy as a beacon of concentration in an age of distraction, which, which I found a really fascinating idea that that, that might be uh, worth considering as a role for, for institutions of higher education to, to deliberately try to provide um, uh, an environment that enables concentration uh, without distraction or with minimizing distractions. So I think this is this, this article also highlights what an ongoing issue it is for everyone, for our students, for ourselves. Uh, I think maybe from a practical standpoint, you know, it, it's more difficult. In the article, they suggest eliminating email, for example, and, and that's probably not a practical uh, suggestion, but. From a practical standpoint, you know, what as far as what what can universities do to foster concentration um, and opportunities for deep thinking in in what we might call an age of distraction? I can tell you one thing that that Colorado State University has offered that I have found very helpful to me as a faculty member in my own efforts to to accomplish uh, writing. Uh, so for me, uh, the, the really intense thinking that I need to accomplish usually centers on writing manuscripts. Uh, there's a program here called CSU Writes, and they basically uh, design retreats uh, and writing workshops for faculty and for graduate students to be able to devote dedicated time just to the task of writing. And so some of the some of the um, programs that they offer are show up and write sessions where, you know, there'll be a room in a certain building on campus, certain days of the week for a certain block of time where you can just show up and write and you show up. It's very quiet. No one's checking social media. No one's checking email. Everyone's there just to write for that uh, for that amount of time in that designated that attending their writing retreats. So, so another program that they have at CSU Writes is uh, dedicated retreats for faculty. And I think they have dedicated retreats for graduate students as well, where you go on an evening, a Friday evening for about an hour or two and do some prep work where you're preparing, you're getting organized for the next day um, so that you have everything that you need at hand to begin the task of writing during the the all-day retreat the next day. So at 8 a.m. the next day, for me, usually this has been a Saturday, you show up to this room on campus. It's usually a classroom with lots of tables. And there are other people there who are there for the same reason as you. They're there just to write. 
and you're in this quiet space where no one's talking, everyone's just writing. There's an endless supply of coffee and snacks uh, and post-it notes to use and pens, but everybody's writing. And so no one's checking email, devices are off, uh, there's no social media. And I have found this to be very helpful to me personally to have this designated time where I'm away. It's my away time. I'm not checking email. I'm just there to write. And you feel accountable because everyone, we take breaks and everyone kind of reports uh, back to everyone else during the breaks on what they've what they've managed to accomplish and, and how they're progressing with their goals for that day. And so I have found that very helpful. And it's had me wondering if students might benefit, undergraduate students, that is, might benefit from something similar. So what if universities organized retreats or or show up and study sessions where it's quiet, there's a rule that phones are off, no email, you're there to study, everybody there in that space during that time is there to just study and focus uh, in quiet. And so just from my own personal experience on the usefulness of, of these types of, of writing retreat experiences, that occurs to me as, as maybe one possibility. Aside from that, it can potentially be helpful to provide resources to teach students how to minimize distractions uh, in their own uh, daily lives and perhaps utilize tools that might help them with focusing and minimizing distractions so that they, so that they can study. Some of my students actually have apps uh, on their phones or devices that silence things or that even limit their access to social media during designated study times to kind of keep themselves from even being tempted to check social media when they know that they should be studying. Um, I guess maybe one more example that, that comes to mind for me is I've been working with some students uh, here, some undergraduate students on applying science of learning strategies to specific courses uh, that they may be struggling with. And one of the things I've learned is that with the advent of ebooks, uh, some students have been finding that the ease of having lots of links. So some of the ebooks that students use these days have a lot of links to them that, that help to connect one piece of information with another piece of information, which on the one hand can be beneficial. It helps you make connections, maybe following these links. But but a potential uh, drawback to the format of some of the ebooks is that students kind of feel like they're getting lost in a jungle of links with the ebook. And and I've had some students tell me that they wish they could just get a printed book. And it has me wondering, and they can't in some cases uh, because only an ebook is available. And so it has me wondering if some some of the you know our digital life and some of these tools kind of similarly to what has happened with email. Uh, they're developed out of convenience and the idea that they'll make our lives easier sometimes end up more distracting. And I think in the case of the design, at least of some eBooks, it appears to be distracting, hard to keep organized, kind of hard to, to keep the big picture in mind. Because if you think about what, what we have with a printed book, you can always go back and look at the table of contents to get a sense of the overall organizational structure. Or you can flip through quickly and look at the headings and and how they're structured to keep in mind what is the organizational structure and how does all of this information fit together into the bigger picture. And in some cases with, with strictly digital books, that overall structure can get lost if you're following links and you're getting lost in the sea of links. And that's where I think 
teaching students organization, on the one hand, can help draw a hierarchical structure of how you think this is organized, is what I'll sometimes tell students to do, so that they have that in front of them to keep going back to. But again, it, it makes me wonder about, about things like printed books, as well as teaching students skills for how to uh, stay organized and, and how to offload onto paper, for example, in front of them in the form of a diagram, some of these aspects of organization. Oh, my gosh, that sounds like a whole other book. Um, that's an important topic. Um, well, you know, we're nearing the end of this interview, so maybe it makes sense to look at some of the topics that appear toward the end of your book. Um, two of those uh, are spacing uh, and testing. Uh, take breaks, you know, spacing, and learn to love, you know, not the bomb, but learn to love test taking. Uh, so, you know, that made me, when, when I was reading about that, I thought it was fascinating. I recalled way back when, when I was in fifth grade, a, an educational experiment that kind of came through our school, wherein we didn't take tests anymore. We had learning experiences, quote unquote, and we didn't receive any grades either. We only received written feedback. I'm guessing, but you tell me if I'm right or wrong, that you're an advocate for testing as learning experiences. Well, so I am an advocate for testing as a learning experience, but to be clear, I wouldn't say that you should replace other effective learning strategies with testing or that testing is the be all end all type of effective learning experience. As you can probably gather from the book, there are many, many effective learning strategies in the learning strategy toolbox, if you will, that, that people can use. Uh, for effective learning. And, and we actually, in our science of learning class in particular, um, have students engage in, in, in all of them or as, in as many of them as possible. So testing just being one tool uh, in, the, in the learning strategy toolbox. Now, testing, there, there are many, many uh, effective learning experiences, and, and I wouldn't want to replace them all with just test, test, test. Um, what testing is a really good alternative to is restudying information. So, so I will say that if it's a choice between spending the time simply reviewing and looking at notes and, and restudying, it's probably better to, to test instead or to engage in some form of what we call retrieval practice. Try to explain it in your own words. Try to test yourself um, it's going to be a good alternative to simply looking at uh, or reviewing. It's not that you want to replace other effective learning experiences like elaboration and asking why or getting writing a paper and getting feedback. Um, you wouldn't want to replace all of those things with testing, but it's just that you'd, you'd want to include testing as one of the methodologies uh, that you're drawing upon, such as low-stake quizzes now and then, potentially, or explaining in your own words in the repertoire uh, of strategies that you use. So Steve briefly mentioned spacing, which I'm all about spacing. So let's not skip over that. Um, what does the science of learning recommend? So there's actually a really great paper um, that was published uh, in 2008 in the Journal of, of Psychological, the journal called Psychological Science. It's called Spacing Effects in Learning, a Temporal Ridgeline of, of op Optimal Retention. And it's, it's kind of a hefty read, uh, but it's, it, it's about what is the optimal space, spacing strategy 
that should be used for a given um, anticipated amount of time before information will ultimately be needed. And so, so I don't think it's necessary really for, for students to try to mathematically compute the, the optimal spacing schedule, even though it appears from this paper that, that that can be done. In all honesty, I think that most students have a hard time even implementing any spacing at all. And so my general advice would be that students should try to engage in some both what we call within session spacing and what we call between session spacing. So within session spacing, it's a lot like it sounds. It's when you're sitting down in a session of studying and you're maybe implementing some form of spacing within that very session of studying. And so an example of how you might achieve this might be if, if a student is trying to learn new vocabulary words through the use of flashcards, and has some repetitions of vocabulary words and their definitions on flashcards throughout the deck, you'd want to space these out, these repetitions throughout the deck within that study session to give yourself some within session spacing. But you also want to have between session spacing, and this would be spacing across days, for example. Um, and so an example to, to, to use the same flashcard vocabulary learning example would be taking that same deck of flashcards and making sure to go through that process of studying them um, and testing yourself with them and using the spaced repetition throughout the deck across multiple days. So it's not just happening in one day. And I will say one of the factors that, that I think is probably going on or probably at work, it's not the only factor at work in why spacing works, but one of the factors very likely at work is sleep in between attempts at studying or in between study sessions. And so the more you can distribute out your study sessions to allow for getting some sleep in between these sessions, the more effective uh, spacing is generally going to be. So last question, you emphasize the role of collaboration in learning. Does this apply to senior leaders in undergraduate education at research universities and how can they best learn? Yeah, so so in our book, we talk about the pros and cons of collaboration. People often assume that collaboration is always a good thing. In fact, you'll find this in, in some books on learning uh, that you should always collaborate or you should always uh, study in groups. Uh, and one of the points we try to make in our book is that working in groups or working in teams in collaboration has its pros and it has its cons. It's not, it's not the case that it's always going to be a beneficial, uh, a beneficial uh, thing when it comes to to learning and to generating ideas, um, or even to when it comes to innovation. Um, so you really have to look at the various ways in which collaboration can lead to positives and the various ways in which collaboration can can lead to negatives. And so, just to give a quick example, and I do think this applies to to senior leaders in universities working in teams, as well as to you know what advice should we be giving to students about collaboration and working in study groups and working in teams. A quick quick example of a positive aspect to working in groups or working in teams is that when you're in a group discussion, someone might express an idea that you would not otherwise have thought of, 
And maybe this turns out to be very useful to you. And you would not have happened upon that idea if it weren't for this person mentioning it in that group setting. In this case, you've benefited. And that was a positive aspect to working in a group. An example of a negative aspect to working in a group might be if if um, um, if you are uh, uh, trying to think of creative or novel ideas, maybe hearing another person's ideas as another person is expressing his or her ideas, knowledge representations in your mind that are relevant to that person's ideas that they're expressing are now being activated in your own mind. And so now these activated knowledge representations are what are at the forefront of your awareness. And maybe that is getting in the way or generating interference, as we might say in memory research. It might be getting in the way of your ability to access a completely different idea. And maybe if you weren't in that group setting, you would have accessed that completely different idea. But now it's sort of been blocked or interfered with by the fact that someone brought up a completely different idea. And now you're not going to think of something that you otherwise would have thought of. So in this way, working in a group can sometimes um, get in the way of creative thought processes or get in the way of memory retrieval or access to information. So, so one of the things that we recommend in the book are trying to maximize the benefits of collaboration while minimizing the pitfalls is, especially in situations where you want people to be able to generate as much information as possible or as, as unique a set of ideas or creative a set of ideas as possible, maybe try working alone first and writing down, you know, what are your initial thoughts and ideas on this? Just thinking alone by yourself without the potential for interference from other people. And then everybody shares their ideas as a group that they've already had a chance to think through on their own while working alone. And, and this might be one way in which people can, can really maximize the benefits of, of group work while minimizing the pitfalls. It's a piece of advice that I often give to students as well. Study on your own first. And there are many reasons why this is a good idea anyway, but study on your own first and generate your, your thoughts and ideas first before you enter the group uh, to study. And then everyone shares their ideas after they've had a chance to think through them on their own. That last sounds a lot like what our reinvention collaborative colleagues do, of course. You know, we've come to the end of our time, uh, Anne, and we're, we're so grateful to you to taking the time to share the benefits of your study, years of study and expertise in this area. It's been a great pleasure uh, talking with you and learning more about the science of learning. Thank you for me as well. Thanks for listening to Reinventing You, a podcast of the Reinvention Collaborative. In this segment featuring our distinguished guest, Dr. Ann Cleary, professor of cognitive psychology at Colorado State University and co-author of A Guide to Effective Studying and Learning, Practical Strategies from the Science of Learning, available from Oxford University Press or wherever books are sold. To learn more about the Reinvention Collaborative, check us out at reinventioncollaborative, all one word, dot org. RC members can listen to an extended version of this interview at the members section of this site. 